have your Bibles, would you go ahead and turn with me to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. Can I just say that I don't take a single one of you for granted? Every single person, you're here. And I am so thankful for that. I believe that you're here because God has you here. And I believe you're here because you need to be encouraged, built up, challenged, convicted by the Word of God. May the Lord, through His Spirit, do that this morning. Judges chapter 2, we're going to be back where we were last week. We're going to read verses 11 through 19. Chapter 2, verse 11 says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had, sw- had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the land of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, we read these words, this description of Israel, and we see so much of our own hearts there. We see so much of our own desires, so much of our own struggles, so much of our own sin as, Lord, we have the full satisfaction that has been made available to us in Christ, and yet we still whore after all of the gods of this world. And so, Father, I pray that for all of us who find ourselves chasing after normal, that this morning you would deliver us from that. That, God, you would allow us to be delivered from normal, that we might have the special relationship with you that you have called for us to have, that we might enjoy the fullness of the fellowship that you have made available to us through Christ as you have redeemed us out of a slavery that we have chosen. Father, I pray for Christians this morning. Christians who know the goodness of Jesus and yet still feel themselves wrapped up by all of the wrong definitions of success. That this morning you would call them out and deliver them from that bondage. God, we ask these things now in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. So Megan and I, we, uh, and, and look, I'm not, uh, you know, you do what you want to do. Megan and I, we, uh, we got the vaccine a few months ago. And obviously it's a controversial, a controversial deal around the vaccine and all that. And so what, we want, so what I wanted to do is I wanted to do as much research as I could. And what I discovered is that this vaccine is 
particularly the Moderna and the, the Pfizer vaccine, is a, is, a, is a new type of vaccine. It's one they call a, uh, a messenger RNA vaccine. And I have a very primitive understanding. I know some of you have a much better understanding of these things than I do. But this is what I discovered uh, in, in my research. And so basically the difference is, is in a, a more traditional vaccine, what they would do is they will take a, a single germ, maybe even a dead germ, and they will take that and they will use that and inject that germ into your body and your body will create an immune response to that germ. And by creating that immune response to that germ, you're then able to fight off the virus when it comes, when, when more of the germ or a, a, a more potent uh, strain of that germ infiltrates your body. Well, what the messenger RNA does is it is actually a protein. So what they do is they take a protein from the... And see, Justin's smiling at me because he knows all about this stuff and he knows I'm butchering this probably. Um, but, but they take a protein from the outer wall of the virus, from what I understand. I mean, Justin, you can give me a, a, a no if I'm, I'm way off here. But they, they, they uh, take a protein from the outer wall of this virus and they use that protein to create a spike protein in you which creates this immune response that basically accomplishes the same thing. The benefit is, is that you can do this protein deal much faster than you can do the traditional mold. And the other part is, is that you're not actually injecting a germ into your body. Now, here's how I think that's relevant to what we're talking about this morning. It occurred to me that what our goal is, is our goal is to inject as little of the virus as we can into ourselves, so little that we're able to be vaccinated, but not infected. Able to be vaccinated, but not infected. That, that we're able to have some of the virus, but not much of the virus. We don't want much of the virus. And so we're able to get a little bit of it so that we don't get the flu, we don't get smallpox, or we don't get COVID, or, or whatever the scenario may be but not so much that we actually become infected. And I started thinking about how that relates to what we talked about last week. Remember what we looked at last week is how many of us, we, we view our lives as a pie chart, right? That God has called us to be special, but we want to settle for being normal and we pursue after normal. And part of being normal is we view our lives as a, as a pie chart. And, and so we want to have Jesus as a part of our pie chart. We want him to have a sliver of our lives. But what we've discovered, and if we're, many of us are honest, what we would say is true of us, is that we want enough of Jesus that we can avoid hell but not so much of Jesus that he alters the whole course of our lives. We, we want, in other words, we want enough of Jesus that we can be vaccinated, but not so much that we're infected. And many of us, if we were to look at our lives, we would say that is the truth. That is the truth. That I have enough of Jesus in my life so that we can have be a normal southern family so that we can have a normal path to pursue so that my kids have some basic understanding of, of biblical morals or however you might frame it up in your house. But I don't want so much that Jesus rules our lives. I don't want so much that I'm not able to give my kids all the things that they wanted, that I'm not able to enjoy all the things that I want. I want enough so that I'm vaccinated but not infected. And so what we said last week is that we chase after normal. We chase after normal. We go in pursuit of this, this balancing act in our lives in which we have enough Jesus but not too much Jesus. 
in which we give Jesus a sliver of our lives, but Jesus is not the ruler of all that we do. It is not a sacrifice that has been offered. And what I, what, where we landed last week is that we chase after normal, but normal is slavery. Normal is slavery. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. If you'll look at verse 12 with me. So in verse 12, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to make this, compa- this contrast, this comparison contrast between God and Israel. Remember what we said that, that this is the Lord, that, that Israel has abandoned the Lord. It says it once, just at the beginning there at verse, uh, at, in verse 12, they abandoned the Lord. And then it says it again there in verse 13, which I didn't, I didn't include right here because I want you to see something else. But in the middle, what you're seeing is you're seeing a contrast between how God has treated them and now they have treated God. How God has responded to them and how now they are responding to God. And so you have three descriptions of God's treatment of Israel put right beside three descriptions of, God, of Israel's abandonment of God. Look at these with me. So it says, and they abandoned the Lord. The, okay, so Lord, that's description one. If you're looking at your Bible, probably in your Bible, Lord is all caps. I don't really know why I didn't transfer over uh, when I put it into the slides. But in your Bible, it probably says Lord in all, all caps. So what does that mean? That is Yahweh, right? Uh, It's put as Lord because the Hebrews would say Lord instead of Yahweh because Yahweh was the covenant name of God. It was a a sacred name of God. It was not a name that they would say out loud. They had such reverence for this name. They, They held it in such esteem that they did not believe it should come from the defiled lips of mankind. And so they wouldn't say it. They would just say Lord. And so in the Bible, it's translated. But whenever you see it all caps, you can say that's Yahweh. And it's referring to the covenant name of of. Of the Lord. Then it says, the God of their fathers. All right, so God is described as the God of the covenant, the Lord, and then he's described as the God of the promises, the promise that had been the promises that had been made to Abraham, the promise that carried forward in Isaac, the promise that carried forward yet another generation to, to Jacob, Israel, and then was transformed or transpersed throughout all of the rest of, or dispersed throughout the rest of the tribes, who had then brought them out of the land of of Israel. All right, so you have one, two, three descriptions of God. And we might summarize those descriptions of God as saying you have the God of the covenant, you have the God of the promise, and then you have the God of salvation, the God of the Exodus, right? God had saved them from Egypt. He had delivered them miraculously by all of the plagues. And so he had brought a great deliverance from Egypt, and he had shown that he was for them, that he was a covenant God that would hold up his end of the covenant. That he was a God in which no no man, no nation, no military, no king would be able to stop his promises from coming true because he is the God of the exodus. He is the God of deliverance. He is the God of salvation. He is the God that can send the plagues and manifest his glory in the midst of his people. So we might summarize all of these three with one word, freedom. He is the God that offers freedom. He offers you freedom so that you don't have to go and earn your way into his covenant. He gives your, you the covenant. He provides it for you. You don't have to go and, and, and try to do all these works and catch the eye of God. He is the God of the promise. He is the God, in other words, that, that credits to you your faith as righteousness. He is the God that promises to you that he's going to provide for you because he's your covenant God. He is the God that promises that he's going to protect you, that he is going to oversee you, that he is going to bring all the circumstances in your nation so that ultimately you can say you intended it for evil, but God intended it for 
good, that he is the God of the covenant, he is the God of the promise, he is the God of salvation, right? He is the God of freedom. He is the God of freedom. Now, whoa, I don't know what happened there. All right, it's amazing it came back up. All right, we're, we're still tracking here. All right, so, but now look at the three descriptions of Israel. They went after other gods. They went after them. Okay, so the picture here is a cultic practice that would often happen. Okay, so what you would have is you would have these pagan priests, and they would lead these processionals all the way through town. And they would be holding the, the image of the, of the bell or the Ashtaroth, and they would be holding this wooden or carved image that would be ahead. And they would be dressed in their full cultic garb and all of their robes, and they would hold it up, and all of the people of the town would come, and they would follow after this pagan priest all the way to the temple where they would perform these strange and sometimes erotic sacrifices and offerings up to the bells and to the Ashtaroth in hopes of appeasing them, in hopes of, of gaining their pleasure and gaining their blessing. And so the idea here is Israel is mindlessly, they are, they are aimlessly wandering behind these, these pagan Prince, uh, these pagan priests behind these wooden silver gods, these gods that can't speak, these gods that can't help, these gods that can't love. Then he says, from among the gods of the peoples. In other words, they wanted to be normal, right? We talked about this last week. That they wanted the gods that everybody else had. They went after the gods and they, they went and they pursued the gods of all the other peoples. The peoples, in fact, that they had just conquered themselves. The people that they had just seen God destroy and crush the walls of Jericho and cause the sun to stand still and see as he slays the people that, that should have, in fact, slayed them. And so here they are pursuing normal. And it says, and then they bow down. This is really the, the, the crescendo point. This is what it's been, been building up to. And so I want you to think about the picture here. All right. The description of God's treatment of Israel is a description of God giving to Israel freedom. God gave to them the covenant. He, he entered into them with them the covenant. He gave to them the promises. They're living here in the promised land because God has fulfilled those promises and shown that he will uphold his promises and uphold his covenant. He has delivered them out of Israel, literally out of a slavery into freedom. And what does Israel do? They go and they bow down as though they are slaves of other gods. In other words, what Israel did is Israel took the freedom that God had provided for them and Israel subjugated themselves to gods that didn't care about them, to gods that didn't love them, to gods that would not answer their prayers, to gods that would not provide for them, gods that would not protect them, gods that would not deliver them. They took the freedom that God gave to them and they used it to subjugate themselves to the other gods of the world. Now I wonder how you're using your freedom. I wonder how you're using your freedom, brothers and sisters. The freedom provided for you in Christ. Freedom from having to measure up to all this mess in this world. Freedom from having to compare yourselves to all the other moms and all the other men and all the other kids at school. Freedom from having to evaluate the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of your life by what you see around you, by trying to sell out your soul to gods that don't care about you. Gods that won't answer you. Gods that don't love you. See, God has provided to you freedom. 
Now I want you to think about what this meant for Israel. Their pursuit of normal, their pursuit of normal as they chased after normal was actually a pursuit and chase after slavery. And I'm telling you that our pursuit and chase after the American dream and the materialism of this age and the gods of this world is a pursuit and a chase after slavery too. See, they tried to now had to all these new gods they had to appease. In fact, by opening up this door, now they were saying any new God that we find, any new God that we discover, any new God that offers something to us, we will take it on. And so, yes, we will have Yahweh. Yes, he, we will even consider him to be our patron God. But we want all of these other gods too. So all of their time, all of their energy, they're worried about which God did I make mad? Which God did I forget? Which God do I not know? Who have I neglected? They thought that by chasing after normal, they would find a greater prosperity. But by chasing after normal, what they actually discovered is that they had enslaved themselves to gods they didn't even know yet. I wonder how many of you can relate to that. I wonder how many of you can relate to that. You see, for Israel, the the appeasement of gods and the the service of all of the false gods became a moving target that they could never hit. And that's what normal is, isn't it? The chase after normal is a chase after a moving target. It's a chase after something that you can never catch. It reminds me uh, of the first time that I uh, was able to backpack the Appalachian Trail. Alex, if you're in here, you were, you were there. You'll remember this. and You probably got a smile and dread on your face at the same time already. So we were doing this hike. We're up in the Smoky Mountains right on the Appalachian Trail. And we're going to hike the full length of, of the Smokies on this particular trip. And we had to climb about five to 5,500 5, to 5, feet that first day. And the first two miles, we climbed the height of Chihaw. So you can just think about how steep the, the climb was. And, and what I remember, and of course, you know, like when you're hiking for the first time, um, you always have too much stuff. You, I, I, Megan has never hiked, and there's, there's a reason for that. But if she did, you always get a trail name when you hike. I've always said that her trail name would be Just In Case because I'm trying to pack my stuff. And she said, don't you want this Just In Case? Don't you need this Just In Case? Well, there's a reason that hikers ignore the Just In Case scenarios. It's because on their first hike, they did that. On their first hike, they did that. And then they had to tote all that junk all the way to the top of that mountain, Right? And so we've got all of our just-in-cases in our backpacks, and we're making this climb, and we've climbed the full height of Chiaw in two miles, and we get to about 3,000 feet. And this is in January because, brilliant me, I thought, yeah, yeah, of course, we'll, we'll hike the week of New Year's. That'll be great, you know? Like, that'll be perfect in the Smoky Mountains at high altitudes. That'll be perfect. And so we get to about 3,000 feet, and it just starts snowing like crazy. Now, your boy hasn't done a lot in the snow. Okay, is that fair to say? I haven't done a lot in the snow. And the markers of the sign of the Appalachian Trail are white blazes that are painted on the trees. Well, guess what color snow is? It's white. So, so we're, we're walking through, and, and the, it begins to snow so hard that the trail begins to cover up. And we're looking for these white blazes, but, but it's snowing so hard that you can't really see the white against the white. And so you, you can't see more than five or ten feet in front of you at a time. And so we, we keep plowing up this mountain. I mean, it's just incredible, 
incredible steepness. And I remember that it would feel like we were almost there. I think we were doing like 10 miles the first day. And, and I guess in retrospect, we were probably like five miles in or something. But it felt like we had walked 10 miles, you know. And, and it seemed like we were almost there. And so we would look up and it would look like you could see the summit in sight. It would look like you could see the end of the trail. And so you would go and you would climb and you would get to where you thought the end of the trail was. And then what you found out is that joker switched back and went up the other side of the mountain, right? Well, then it would happen again. And you would think, okay, all I've got to do is just make it right there. If I can just make it right there, then I'm going to be able to set up camp and be able to rest and take it easy for the night. And you would get right there and switch back up the mountain again. It was like that. The, it, it really genuinely felt like the top of the mountain was moving. You know, you ever, ever hiked like that? That is the picture of our pursuit of normal, isn't it? That is the picture of our pursuit of normal. It's a subtle slavery, a subtle slavery. You don't instantly go in and, and become a slave. You're coaxed into slavery like a, like a frog in a, in a pot that's warmed up slowly to the boiling temperature, right? In other words, we always think we have one more thing that we need for our lives to be complete, don't we? We always think there's one more thing that we need so that we can be happy. One more thing that we can be so that we can finally be considered successful. And so at first, it's just, I need to get through college. If I can just get through college, if I can get to the other side of college or high school, once I, once I graduate, then, then I'll be fine. Then my life will fall into place. I'll be happy. And then it becomes marriage. If I can just get married, if I can just find the right guy, if I can just find the right girl, if I can just get the right relationship, then I'll be happy. And then you get married and you're still hungry. You're still thirsty. You're still, you're still longing for something, right? The, the, the trail is switchbacking up the other side of the mountain. And now you're thinking, if I can just get the right job, if I can just get the right job, if I can just make the right amount of money, if I can, if I can just have all the things that I need, then, then I'll be happy. Then finally I'll feel like I'm successful. Then finally I'll feel like I'm normal, right? And of course you know what happens. There's another switchback. And then it's kids, and then it's, it's having church maybe, or then it's having a job that has more meaning to it, or then it's being able to, to move from a starter home and, and upgrading that to, to, the, to the home of, of success and prosperity. But every single thing that you get, you find out that it's a mirage in the middle of the desert. It's a, it's a carrot that's just dangling front, in front of you. It's the, the, the top of the mountain keeps moving. And no matter what you get, and no matter what you attain, and no matter what you buy, no matter how how many relationships you have and how many friendships you have and how much you go to church. It's like it's just out there in front of you and you never feel normal because it's a slavery. It's a pursuit of something you can never attain. It's a pursuit of something you can never find. That's what makes Joshua 24 so wonderful. You see, when Joshua told Israel, choose this day whom you will serve, if you want to serve the gods of the Egyptians, go and serve the gods of the Egyptians. If you want to serve the gods of the Amorites, go and serve the gods of the Amorites. But if Yahweh is the Lord, if he is the Lord of your salvation, if he is the God of the covenant, if he is the God of the promise, then follow me because as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. Don't be distracted by all the normal around you. Don't be distracted by all of the gods that are around you. Don't be distracted by all of the opportunities that are around you. No, if the Lord is God, 
Follow him with all of your mind and with all of your heart and with all of your strength. Give him everything that you've got and it will simplify your life. Because here's the thing about God. God is coming to us. We don't have to run out and catch him. He is the one who we can actually have, who we can actually enjoy, who will come and obligate himself to us when he has no responsibility to do it. That is, he is the God of freedom. Freedom from this rat race chase after normal. Freedom from all of these gods that don't care. In other words, it's a call for us to not care about those who don't care. Do I need to say that again? It's a call for us to not care about those who don't care. And instead to give all of who you are, all of your affection, all of your passion, all of your priority, all of your life. To the one who does. Now, of course, we, we know that Israel doesn't do that. Instead, Israel is intent on doing what? They're intent on doing what we tell all the graduates to do. They're intent on following after their own hearts. And I want you to read what it says next. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. In other words, you know what it says? It says that God allowed them to catch what they were chasing. God allowed them to follow after their own hearts and he gave them exactly what their hearts wanted. And what you find out is in the scripture, in the scripture, the greatest judgment a person can experience is when God allows them to catch what they're chasing. Now look, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. Do you see what he did? You want to go after other gods. You want to whore after other gods. You want to be normal. You want what everybody else has. You want to bow down and subjugate yourself to masters who do not love you. Well, guess what everybody else experiences? Guess what everybody else knows? Guess what is normal? Normal is slavery. And so I will sell you over to the gods that you want so badly. Israel begs us to ask the question, what if we're succeeding at all the wrong things? What if we're winning at the wrong game? If you would have looked from the outside looking into Israel, Israel had prosperity like they had never experienced. They were living in the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to their forefathers in the promised land. They were living in brand new homes. They, were, they had just experienced great victory and triumph and military might. They had just come in and, and being able to, to slay every single one that had stood in front of them. And they were there on the edge of a prosperity unforeseen in the ancient world. A prosperity by every metric that was success. But they wanted the wrong game. They succeeded at what didn't matter. And I think there's a call in there for us, brothers and sisters. Maybe you're doing okay by the comparison between your family and your neighbor's family. Maybe you're doing okay in the comparison between you and the other moms or the other dads. 
Or maybe you feel guilty all of the time because you're not measuring up and you're not winning the comparisons. But honestly, it doesn't matter because that's the wrong game. That's a game that you don't want to win at. That's a game that leads to slavery. That is succeeding at the very thing that will strike you down. Can you imagine what it must have been like when the hand of the Lord came against them for the first time? All they had ever known, this is, remember, this is the children of the ones that went in and conquered the promised land. In their life, all they had ever known was the bountiful blessings of the Lord. That's all they'd ever known. All they had known was victory. All they had known was the might of God. All they had known was the provision of God. All they had known was the protection of God. It's all they had ever experienced was that the hand of God was for them. And the hand of God would provide for them. And the hand of God would deliver them. He was the God of the covenant. He was the God of the promise. He was the God of salvation. It was the only way that they knew him. And now suddenly the hand of the Lord is against them. The very same might the very same holiness, the very same sovereignty against them. Why? What is God doing here? We, whenever, remember, we're talking about the big story. And we're fixing to land this right here in the gospel. Remember, what we're talking about in the big story is we're talking about how this is one, one chapter of a grander story that all of the books of the Bible fit together to paint a broad picture of what God is doing over the course of history. What is God doing right here? He's loving his people. That's what he's doing. God is proving how wonderful he is. I don't think we think of the wrath of God that way. I don't think we think of the justice of God that way. But can I just tell you, God is not indifferent toward the sins of his people. He's too wonderful for that. That God is too good and God loves you too much that if you are his son or you are his daughter, for him to sit idly by while you win at the wrong game. No, God will allow you to experience the distress of chasing after other gods that you can know as Israel was to learn how empty they are, how impotent they are, how destitute you become when you sell yourself into a prostitution and slavery to people who do not care about you. After all, who loves you more? Is it the parent that doesn't care about what you do and lets you run amok and go wherever you want to go and do whatever you want to do? Or is it the parent that brings boundaries into your life? Is it, the, is it the parent that sees you destroying your life and brings discipline to catch your attention that you might not self-destruct? Is it the parent that watches you as you chase after the desires of your own heart but throws up the flag and say, no, 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 warning, warning, warning. You are chasing after your own heart, but you're about to run slap off a cliff. No, it's love. It's kindness. It's being wonderful for a parent to sound that alarm. But it gets better. It gets better. I want you to see this. Normal is slavery. We chase normal. Normal is slavery. But then God redeems you from the slavery of normal. God redeems you from the slavery of normal. Look at what it says in verse 16. It says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Now, why are they being plundered? Because God has given them over, right? 
God has sold them into the slavery of their own of their own desires. He has sold them over to these other gods. He has allowed them to subjugate themselves. That's why they are being plundered. But then what does God do? God saves you from himself. God saves Israel from his judgment. God raises them up, in other words, and buys them out of the very slavery that he had sold them into. This is this again in verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges, this is the pattern of the book. Remember we talked about how this is an overview of the book. God raised up the judges for them. The Lord was with the judge and he saved them. Do you see the theme here? You see the theme? From the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and depressed them. We call this the book of Judges, and they are uh, called shopate, which is the, the Hebrew word for, for judge. But interestingly enough, though they're called judges in the book of Judges, very rarely do they actually do judicial work. That throughout the book of Judges, what the judges actually do is they do redeem, redeem, redeeming work. They do delivering work. They conquer over the enemies of Israel. They deliver Israel from the hands of those that would otherwise destroy them. And that a, a better title of the book of Judges is probably the book of the redeemers, the book of the deliverers, the book of salvation. Because time and again, you read this pattern that takes place. In fact, there's 12 different cycles, and we're going to look at a couple of them over the next few weeks. Next few weeks, There's 12 different cycles, and they all go like this. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so, and so God allowed them to suffer at the hands of their enemies and be conquered by the hands of their enemies. And the people cried out to God, and God raised up a judge who would ultimately save them. Do you see a pattern starting to lay out here? But see, the problem was is that this was a pattern that was set on repeat. It happened 12 times over and over and over, almost the same thing time and time again until ultimately it says in verse 25, the very last verse of the whole book of Judges is a summary of what's just been said. And it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, for everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is, everyone followed after his own heart, and there was no king who could ultimately deliver. You see, the picture here is of what God started in the, in the Garden of Eden that was condemned and cursed because of the sin of Adam and Eve. God made it perfect. Man sinned against God. God allowed it to be cursed. God, man cries out in hopelessness, and what does God do? God steps into the midst of his creation, and he's going to do that through Christ. You come here into the book of Judges and you've brought Israel into the promised land. It is as though it is a new Eden. It is undefiled. It is clean. The houses are empty. What's the first thing Israel does? They sin against God. God punishes them. He allows them to experience the full weight of his curse. But then God raises up redeemer after redeemer after redeemer who buys them out of slavery, who puts their feet back on the rock, who brings them up. But the cycle is on repeat because the book of Judges is groaning for a greater king. 
The book of Judges is groaning for a greater king. That all of redemption is pointing us toward Christ. The king who will come, who by the price of his life, by the blood of, of his own back poured out for us, there can now be the remission of sins that he is going to buy us out of our own self-destructing slavery. And so there is a call here. There is a call that every single one of us has to make with the freedom that has now been offered to us in Jesus. And it's, do you want to be normal or do you want to be free? Do you want to be normal or do you want to be free? You see, normal is the cycle stuck on repeat. It's the cycle that you can't break. It's you, God, giving you what you don't deserve. You sinning against God, the curse coming upon, the, uh, upon you and all the things that you love and know, and no hope for you to overcome the, the egregiousness of your own sin unless God comes and saves you from himself, which he has provided for you in Christ. If you will only follow him, if you will only receive him, you will only surrender to him. See, Jesus is the dividing edge of judgment. And so Jesus frames it up like this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, do you want to be on the normal path or do you want to be on the narrow path? See, the normal path is the gate is wide and the path is wide and most people are on it. Most people are on it because you just do what's normal. You just do what everybody else does and you just go after what everybody else wants. In fact, it's a path that's made up of many paths. And if you can't find a path on the normal path that fits you, you can make up your own and just add a new one to the mix. But for the narrow path, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to eternal life. See, normal is death. Normal is destruction. Normal is slavery. But the narrow path of salvation that finds its only realization through the access that has been provided to us by the redemption accomplished through Jesus Christ at the, according to the will and the plan of the Father is that you would surrender everything to him. And there is one way, only one way, and it is not an easy path because you are not going to be normal. You are going to be special. So this morning, which path are you on? Which path are you on? Are you on the normal path? Or are you on the narrow path? If you find yourself on the normal path, the narrow gate is open. And it is a gate so narrow that you can't take in all of the other expectations of the world. And you can't take in all of the comparisons. And you can't fit in other gods. There's one God. But in one God, there is freedom. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.